The sermon scripture comes from 2 Chronicles um, 29 through 32. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him and to be his ministers and make offerings to him. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Epaphram and to Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. So couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes as they had commanded, saying, as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord God, we we worship you as one people. We worship you as a God who has loved us when we were unlovable, who has called us to know you, and you've put desires in our hearts to know you more. So please may your spirit be at work in our hearts to make us into the kingdom of priests that you want us to be, to consecrate all of us as living sacrifices before you, our God. May you do that, we ask you, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Amen. Amen. If I ask you a question, would you rather, all things considered, have a brand new car or a 15-year-old car, same make and model, all things considered, I'm guessing all of us would say I'd rather have a brand new car. <laughs> like, there are old cars. I used to want a Volkswagen van again when I was in high school. I just thought they were the coolest vans. Um, but aside from those kind of, like, nostalgic reasons, we would all take a brand new car over an old car. Why is that? Well, because time is not kind to cars. They begin to break down. Rubber seals harden and don't work, and you need to replace them. Various parts of the car break down, you need to replace them. Things tend towards disorder. Now, I, uh, I would say this has something to do with the second law of thermodynamics from my memory of eighth grade earth science, but when I went to Google the second law of thermodynamics, I realized it's a lot more complicated than how they made it sound in eighth grade earth science, and I actually don't understand the second law of thermodynamics. So this may or may not have something to do with the second law of thermodynamics, but things tend towards disorder. That's how it works. So I'd rather have a new house rather than a 150-year-old house because a 150-year-old house is starting to slump. There may be structural issues, maybe termite damage. So things tend towards disorder. Well, this is similar with God's people. You look at Christians or people who follow God. The British biblical scholar F.F. F. Bruce wrote, if church history teaches one thing more than another... It is that there is a constant tendency to deterioration. We tend to deteriorate, spiritually speaking. That's, just, that's the way that natural things work, but ironically, that's the way that spiritual things work too. And we see this in the story of Israel. As Israel goes through spiritual decline, then God brings renewal, and then decline and renewal again. But we see this, this constant natural movement unless God kind of breaks into the picture and and, and, and changes the direction, the direction is tends towards a spiritual deterioration. Now, in our story today, we get to see one of those moments when God breaks into the story and brings renewal, which is so encouraging to see, especially when you look at where Israel was when King Hezekiah becomes king and what God is renewing Israel from. But it's also helpful because it gives us a sense of what biblical renewal actually looks like. What does it look like when God breaks into the story and changes the direction of God's people and renews their hearts and their minds and their spirits? But my argument, my basic, my main argument, though, for this morning is going to be that basic to biblical renewal is the reconsecration of God's people, the rededication, the recommitment of God's people to his service. I'm going to explain what consecration means. That's a very biblical word, and we'll get into all that. But that's my main argument is that Basic, most basic, most essential to true biblical renewal is consecration to God. My outline for this morning, give you a sense of where we're going. First, we're going to look, for the, we're going to look at the need for continual spiritual renewal. The, and then second, the essence of biblical renewal. And then finally, some additional characteristics of true biblical renewal. So to give a recap again of where we are in 2 Chronicles, it's written to Israel as they're returning from exile. They've spent 70 years in exile. They're coming back, trying to make sense of a very different world. And so the chronicler writes this, recapping Israel's history to give them a sense of who God is, what he wants from them as they rebuild their nation. Now we've looked at the Israel, according to the chronicler, kind of hits their pinnacle with David and Solomon and but then after Solomon, Israel divides into the north and the southern kingdom. And things start to kind of move downhill from there. 
We looked at Jehoshaphat last week. He was a godly king. And during his reign, God rescues Israel in a miraculous way. I mean, Israel doesn't even fight in that battle. God just tells them to show up, and the battle will already have been won, and that's the case. It's an amazing case of God as deliverer. But at the very end of Jehoshaphat's reign, even though Jehoshaphat was a very godly king, there's this kind of ominous note sounded in chapter 20, verse 33, that the people had not yet set their hearts upon the God of their fathers. So even though Jehoshaphat loves the Lord, is leading well, there's still compromise in the hearts of the people. Well, we're moving forward eight chapters from chapter 21 to chapter, well, it's actually nine, eight chapters to 29. So there's a lot that happens in there. We're not going to cover all of it, obviously. But there's seven kings in between Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah. Some of them are good. Some of them are not good. But the king right before Jehoshaphat, his name is King Ahaz. And he is, up until this point, the worst king Israel has ever had. And maybe the worst king Israel has ever had. And so to understand the context that Hezekiah is beginning his reign in, it's helpful to look at King Ahaz and what's going on in Israel in those decades leading up to King Hezekiah. So if you have a Bible open, go ahead and look at chapter 28. We're going to be mostly looking at chapter 29 and 30. But again, look at chapter 28, verses 1 to 4. This is the king who is right before Hezekiah. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and he made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Now, Ahaz is not the first king to compromise and worship foreign gods. But what the chronicler tells us is this has gotten so bad, he is now acting like the Canaanite nations that were driven from the land when Israel came. If you've read the story of the conquest and numbers in Deuteronomy, part of that story is God giving the promised land to Israel, but the other part of the story is God using that to bring judgment on the nations of Canaan. Why? Because they did stuff like this, burning their children in sacrifices to demonic beings. And the sad irony here is we have the king of Israel, the king of God's people, who is now looking like the Canaanites and engaging in the same kinds of practices. We see all different levels of, of, of spiritual compromise, of moral evil. And in, in response, God sends a Syrian nation. They defeat Israel. This seems like it could be an opportunity for Ahaz to repent, to turn back to the Lord. But again, look at verses 22. It goes from bad to worse. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same king Ahaz, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him. And he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God, and he cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God, and he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. This is the state of Israel when Hezekiah begins. They've had an apostate king who wasn't just satisfied with being spiritually profligate himself. He actually had to try to prohibit people from worshiping Yahweh. 
He shut the doors of the temples. He went and he destroyed the utensils. It's like someone coming in and like destroying our PA system and locking the door and like throwing filth everywhere. Like we're going to make it difficult to even worship Yahweh, much less adding altars everywhere. Israel's been in some low places before. This is probably the lowest spiritual state that Israel's ever been in. There's no mention of assemblies. I mentioned before that in Chronicles, when the people gather together, it usually calls, it says they assemble. It's a significant kind of spiritual rhythm. And it's actually the word that we get the New Testament gathering from, the ecclesia. There are no assemblies happening during Ahaz. The people don't meet together, at least not to worship Yahweh. And of course, there's great compromisers. Altars built throughout the land. They're offering on the high places. It's really clear that Judah is in desperate need of spiritual renewal. You might even say spiritual resurrection. But before we get to the renewal that God brings, I want to make an observation, and I want to then ask a question. And the observation is this, is that spiritual decline and renewal are cyclical for Israel. I've already mentioned them. They're cyclical. They, they, they're just regular patterns. Right? God brings renewal. That generation does great. The next generation kind of assumes what God has done, and the generation after that has forgotten, and they enter into decline. And that goes on for a, ser- a season, and then God brings renewal again, and there's decline. It's a cyclical pattern that we see in the nation of Israel. There's three different times when Judah, from Solomon until the last king, when Babylon destroys the southern kingdom, there are three separate times when they renew their covenant with the Lord. Israel had a a special relationship with God. They had a covenant relationship in which God promised to do things for them, but there were responsibilities for Israel. There were things they had to live up to. It's kind of like how we think of, this is actually where we get the word for marriage covenant. When you marry someone, it's not an open relationship. You get certain rights, namely your wife or your husband is yours and yours alone. But their responsibilities, you are now theirs and theirs alone. And if you break those responsibilities, there are consequences. And so to renew a covenant wasn't just like how we think of, well, I'm rededicating my life to the Lord. It was this formal process, a national process. And they did it three different times as they're going through these cycles of decline and renewal, decline and renewal. Again, what one generation assumes, the next generation loses. And what's interesting, this is not just true of the Israelite nation. This is true of the Christian church. And there's so much historical evidence of this. Like, I could spend all day just going through the cycles the church goes through of decline, renewal, decline, renewal. But a really kind of example that's kind of close to us, we look at Leipzig, where the Hones are serving as missionaries. Uh, Friedrich came and gave a, 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 a missions update at our prayer meeting. Got to meet him. They're church planting in Leipzig, Germany. The irony is that 400 years ago, Leipzig, Germany was a hotbed for Protestantism. It was one of the main centers of the Reformation where people were rediscovering the gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Johann Sebastian Bach, not our Johann, but another gifted musical genius who probably wrote the greatest church music ever, he ministered in Leipzig, Germany for decades. 400 years later, the church is so secular it's hard to find a Christian. And now God is bringing renewal through their church plant as people are coming to know the Lord. Decline, renewal, decline, renewal. It's It's a cyclical process even for the church. So that's my observation, is that decline and renewal are cyclical for the church. And so that means 
every church is either being renewed or is declining. If that's the process for every church, if every church going through this process of declining or renewing, that means we're either being renewed by the Lord or we're declining. There's no plateauing. It doesn't exist in the Bible. And so if that's true, if every church is either being renewed or declining, then the question is, where do we need renewal? We can look broadly. We can talk about Christian churches in America. And when you look at that big of a subset of Christians, then there's a whole lot of things we can look at and say, yes, we need renewal there. I think one that stands out to me really clearly is just the divisiveness, divisiveness, and disunity that we see even within our own denomination. I went to the Southern Baptist Convention for the first time in my life in June, and it was very interesting, but the reason it was interesting is that there was just so much bitter division and disunity. Now, here's the thing. Just having disagreements isn't the problem. Like, we live in a fallen world. That means our brains don't work perfectly, which means good faith Christians will come to differences on issues. There will always be disagreements. The problem is when we maybe pay lip service to the primary issues of the gospel, but what we're really excited about are these secondary issues. What we're spending our emotional capital on, what what we're organizing around is not commitment to Jesus Christ and his gospel, but it's whatever secondary, tertiary issue it is. And when we see that kind of division, well, that's a sign of deep spiritual unhealth. Now, it's easy to understand conceptually. We all, we all understand, okay, the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith, the substitution, substitutionary atone, atoning work of Jesus Christ, these are fundamental issues. Like, you disagree on that, I'm sorry, we can't have fellowship. We understand that. And we understand that other issues are secondary. It's easy to understand conceptually, but how we actually live that out? Because here's the thing, when people divide over issues, they usually believe that they are primary issues. Within our denomination, there's great divisions, and the people that are causing divisions think these issues we're dividing over are primary issues. That's where it gets complicated. And a lot of times, we don't fully know what are primary and secondary issues until hindsight. Until time goes by and we look back and we say, yeah, that really was a secondary issue, or no, that really was a primary issue. Let me give you a perfect example. I grew up in kind of a dispensational setting where like end time prophecies were just incredibly divisive. And my family were going to a church and we wanted to join. I was like 10. So they went to the membership class and they found out that to join this church, you had to affirm their teaching on the rapture. Specifically, there was this big debate over does the rapture come before the tribulation or after the tribulation? And my parents couldn't in good faith say that's what they believed. So my parents couldn't join that church. Now we look back now and we say that was a secondary issue. They were prohibiting fellowship. They were barring Christians from fellowship over secondary issues. That's so obvious. But at the time, it felt like a primary issue. It's like, this is a matter of the Bible. We're either going to take the Bible seriously or we're not. Here's my point. We just need a lot of humility. Because we may not know completely in the moment, is this primary issue, is this secondary issue? We just need a lot of humility. And I think we should tend towards generosity. 
Well, that's what's happening out there. In one sense, it's easier to talk about the church out there. It's interesting. It's easier because it doesn't hit us in our hearts. But let's talk about us as a church. Where do we need renewal? This is where it gets pretty personal. Where are we as a church? Where do we see disunity among us? Where are we compromising? Where do we look more like the world than like Jesus? These are questions just to keep in your mind as we go through this text. So our first point, the continued need of, I'm sorry, I don't even remember what it's called. What's it called? (laughs) The need for continual renewal, that was it. Second point, the essence of biblical renewal. And here we finally get to Hezekiah. So again, look at chapter 29, verses 1 to 11. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 29 years old. I'm sorry, 25 years old. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and he repaired them. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites. Now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God, and they have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord, and they turned their backs. And they also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps, and they have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel." Therefore, the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord. Again, this is him renewing his covenant. The God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us, My sons, do not be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him, and to be his ministers, and to make offerings to him. From the beginning, Hezekiah shows where his priorities are. He wants to reinstitute true worship of Yahweh. He wants to open the temple back up for the sacrifices to continue. This is what's most important to him. That's why it's in the first year of his reign, the first month, the first thing he does. Now, I'm going to give you a quick overview. Of, again, two chapters is a lot, so we're not going to go verse by verse. I'm, but I'm going to give you an overview of what happens. So first, he, he, uh, Hezekiah calls the Levites, the group of Israelites who are in charge of leading worship, whether in the tabernacle or once there was a temple in the temple. And he calls them to clean up the temple and prepare it to, to purify it, to once again restart the regular sacrifices. Once that happens and the people gather and begin the sacrifices again, then Hezekiah calls for the Passover to be celebrated. That, I mean, the Passover is what celebrates God delivering them from Egypt. It's the most sacred memory. This is what made Israel a nation, was God delivering them. And they, he calls for the celebration of the Passover probably for the first time in decades. And so this whole time we're seeing renewal, God bringing renewal, God putting within the hearts of his people a desire to know him and worship him. But there's one word that's repeated throughout these two chapters again and again and again, which again, my argument is that this is what is basic to renewal, and that is the word consecration. We see it first in 29 verse 5, again, when he's calling the Levites, 
who would be the temple servants, the ones who will, who will kind of carry out the worship. He says, hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers. He says, consecrate yourselves and then consecrate the temple. And then once the temple has been consecrated and cleaned out and the offerings have been restarted, Hezekiah then speaks to the people. He says, now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, he describes this renewal process, they have now consecrated themselves. And then in chapter 30, as they describe the Passover, it's a word that's repeated again and again. It's clearly a major theme of these two chapters describing God's renewal is the people consecrating themselves. Okay, now what does that mean then? It's not a word we use a whole lot. Like, you use the word consecrate, there is a 99% chance you're a Christian. It's not a word that you're going to see in our common usage. And it's a word that's taken from the temple worship practices. To be consecrated means to be set apart from common usage for something special. So the whole tribe of Levi, they were consecrated. They were set apart. They actually had to give up their, their, their right to own land. They didn't get an inheritance like the other 11 tribes because they were set apart for common usage for a special purpose to serve God in his temple. The temple had, uh, had, had utensils, cups, saucers, things that were used in the sacrifices. They were consecrated. They were set apart. The priests weren't taking these home and like eating dinner with them. They're set apart from their common usage for a special usage. That's, that's the context of what consecrate means. It's used in temple worship. But the Bible uses it more broadly of God's people. That God's people similarly are meant to be consecrated, set apart from common usage for special service to God himself. And this is a common theme, not just in the Old Testament, but we see it in the Bible. All throughout the Bible, in the New Testament. In Romans 12.1, Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, one who is deeply immersed in the Old Testament scriptures and the Old Testament idea of consecration. He says this to New Testament believers, using temple language, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy. That means consecrated. That's the same word, consecrated and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. This is what worship means. Be consecrated to God, set apart like a living sacrifice. I tell you what, to be consecrated to God, to be set apart from common usage, see if I can say this word, it is not compartmentalizable. We compartmentalize our lives, okay? I got my work self, I got my home self, I got my leisure self, right? And when we mix them up, it gets weird, you know? So like everyone knows, like you have your professional phone voice, hi, it's my Cuban ex, or I, didn't, I can't do it on, the, on, on call, right? But if like you're applying for a job and they call you, like you put on your professional voice, if you talk to your kids like that, they're going to be like, Dad, what is your beef? What's going on? Like, we compartmentalize our lives. We act differently in different parts of our lives. To consecrate our lives, it's not possible to say, this part of my life is, is, is being offered on the altar. This part is not. If an animal's on the altar, the whole thing's on the altar. It's totalizing. Here's the thing. Jesus can be superficially appealing Think about it. He comes and he preaches grace and forgiveness. He heals people. He calls out the hypocrites. Like very, everyone likes that. Who doesn't want forgiveness and healing? 
But Jesus also says, in the same vein, you have to be consecrated, set apart. In John chapter 12, verses 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, in the context of John 12, he's talking about his own death. He's preparing to die. Jesus is saying, unless I die, God will not accomplish salvation. But he's saying, and if you want to follow me, you've got to die likewise. Because two verses later, in verse 26, he says, and if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, he must follow me. And where is Jesus going? He's going to die. Now, this does not mean that Jesus is calling for mass suicide. Jesus is not a cult leader. But it means that if you want to follow Jesus, the best word to sum that up is death. And I tell you what, you can't compartmentalize death either. Those of you who had loved ones die, you know. They're gone. To follow Jesus involves everything. Consecration involves all that we have to be completely set apart for the purposes of God. And this is a spiritual truth I think we draw from this as we see God renew Israel in this way and it, and it manifests itself in Israel consecrating themselves to God is that there is a regular need in the life of a believer to re-consecrate ourselves to God. A regular need. Because the problem is that those of us who have died, we keep coming back to life. Or those living sacrifices keep trying to crawl off the altar. And so there's a need for us to continue to reconsecrate ourselves. There's different ways to look at sanctification among Christians. Some Christians look for these big spiritual experiences, and this is very up and down, kind of more of a Pentecostal, charismatic understanding. And then you have more of the, like, you know, Eugene Peterson, the same obedience in a long, or long obedience in the same direction, it's just kind of like long. They're both right. Sanctification is an up and down process going in the same direction for a long time. It's decline, renewal, decline, renewal. As God renews our hearts, Spirit stirs our hearts, and we realize, I must offer all of myself up to the Lord, because I haven't been. But then that living sacrifice starts to drag itself off the altar, and then the Spirit stirs our hearts, and we once again offer all of ourselves in consecration to the Lord. That's what it looks like. The only problem is when we is when we stop laying our lives on the altar. We flatline. In the medical world, that means you're dead. Discipleship's hard. It's hard. You know, I get older. Let me, so if you're in college, it's just easier when you're 19 to be like, I messed up, I'm sorry, I repent. And the older you get, you're like, I feel like I should have this together, and you realize you don't. And it just, I don't know why, it just, it's harder. The life of discipleship is hard. It's hard to continue to place ourselves on the altar as living sacrifices. Because you know what? To be living sacrifice hurts. Like, it wasn't a pleasant experience for the animals on the altar. It killed them. That's why the Catholic journalist G.K. Chesterton said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. That's why I said Jesus can be superficially appealing. Because the way of Christ is actually quite difficult. But here's the thing. It 
It also promises eternal life. Yes, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must die. But in so doing, you'll discover life. A life you can't have anywhere else. The essence of renewal is reconsecration. So we have to ask, are there parts of our lives that need to be reconsecrated, that need to be rededicated, re-given back to the Lord, set aside from common usage for service to God himself? Only God knows your hearts. You've got to search your hearts on your own. I can't tell that for you. But I can tell you one thing. We live in a materialistic, consumeristic world that so infiltrates everything that tells us we're consumers first, disciples second. I imagine all of us have places that we need to reconsecrate. I'm sorry, I think reconsecration is an everyday event. It's not a every five years I have a big spiritual moment. I think it's every morning. God, show me. Show me. What does it mean for me to die? Show me where I need to die. And then by your spirit, help me to do that so I can be set apart for you in all parts of my life. Because at the end of the day, I'll lose everything, but if I can have Jesus, I'm good. That's the life of discipleship. That's what we're aiming for. So our first point was the continual need of renewal, of spiritual renewal. The second was the essence of biblical renewal is consecration. And our third point is some additional characteristics of true biblical renewal. I, I thought about titling this third point um, some marks of biblical renewal, kind of play off of the nine marks thing. And I was going to say, these are some, not the. Anyways, I didn't, but I just forgot to say it. Anyways, there's only like two of you who know what I'm talking about. But these are some additional characteristics. There are other characteristics of biblical renewal. But the, there are two that I think we see, in addition to this idea of consecration, there are two that we see in our text. And the first is a renewed fight against sin. And then the second is unity among the body. So the first we see a renewed fight against sin in this renewal. When the temple is cleared out, repurified, made ready for the sacrifices, it's interesting to see what the first sacrifice is. Go ahead and look at verses 20 to 24. Then Hezekiah the king rose early. So they've come and told Hezekiah, the temple's ready. We're ready. So he gathered the officials of the city, and they went up to the house of the Lord, and they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. And so they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests received the blood, and they threw it against the altar. And they slaughtered the rams, and their blood was thrown against the altar. And they slaughtered the, lam slaughtered the lambs, and their blood was thrown against the altar. And then the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king in the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priests slaughtered them and made a sin offering with their blood on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. There are a number of different offerings they could have made. There were like fellowship offerings or peace offerings. They've been like kind of like worship songs, you know, like generic worship, which would make sense. They haven't been worshiping Israel. Why wouldn't you begin with worship? But the first thing they begin with is a sin offering. And by the way, if you're wondering, why is this blood, this like blood's just being thrown everywhere. This is really weird and strange. What's going on here? In the Bible, forgiveness is always achieved through substitution. So it says that the priests would lay their hands on the goats 
And what that's symbolizing is the passing of the sins of the priests and the sins of the nations now onto this goat. And then the goat is slaughtered. That's how God, God who's, a, who's a good and just God, that's how he forgives sins. It's always been through substitution, something on my behalf. But the first thing they offer is sin offering. They deal with sin. They begin to fight sin. And I tell you what, again, this is some additional characteristics, but I think this is one of the marks that is in every true spiritual renewal is a renewed intolerance of sin. Be done with it. You can have a spiritual service where everyone is just very emotional, but if there is not an intolerance of sin, I'm sorry, it's not the Spirit of God. Because here's the thing, when the Lord draws near to us in the presence of his holiness, our sin matters more. And we're not like justifying anymore, playing it off like it's not a big deal. We're in the presence of the Holy One. I will do what it takes in that moment to kill the sin that exists in me. Every true renewal brings a renewed fight against sin, a renewed intolerance. I will not tolerate it in my life. Now there's some irony here. Because it may be tempting to think, you know what, the less I struggle with sin, that's a sign of spiritual growth. I'm struggling with it less. I must be drawn closer to the Lord. And there's, there's truth in that, right? Like if, if, you're, if you have a history of pornography and you're no longer struggling with it, that is good, okay? But actually, when we consider that we live in the world with the flesh and the devil, the truth is that we will fight with sin or we will compromise. We will struggle with sin or we will compromise. In the same way the church is either declining or being renewed, we're either fighting sin or we're compromising with it. The sign of spiritual growth is not a lack of struggle. That's a sign that you've compromised. You've given up. You've, you've flown the white flag. You're just not bothered by it. With renewal comes a renewed struggle against all manifesting sins. Anything within me that, 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 that dampens my, my experience of the presence of Jesus, no, I'm done with it. And a lot of times this manifests itself in the confession of sin to a brother or sister in Christ. You know, we don't confess sin to be morbid. It can be awkward, especially in men's discipleship. Last week we confessed sin to one another, and it's probably awkward for some. But there's nothing that kills sin like bringing it into the light. When we confess sin, that's a declaration of war on the sin in our life. We're done, we're done with it. We'll do what we need to do. Again, I would say... And one of the, the additional characteristics of biblical renewal and one that we see in every genuine work of the Spirit is renewed fight against sin. But the second characteristic that we see in here, which again often comes with the renewal of the Spirit, is unity. So again, in chapter 30, so that they've restored the temple worship, they restored the sacrifices, and then Hezekiah wants to have a Passover, celebrate the Passover. But it's interesting, he's not satisfied just with the southern kingdom. He's not satisfied with it just being kind of a parochial, sectarian celebration. He wants the northern kingdom involved. And what's interesting, actually, the northern kingdom has already fallen. The chronicler doesn't even bother describing the northern kingdom being destroyed. Um, because again, at this point, they know the southern kingdom is the only one that survives. The northern kingdom has been destroyed, but there are still northerners left. 
And so in chapter 30, verse 1, Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah, and he wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. Those are northern tribes. Let's get all of Israel to, to, to participate in this renewal that God is bringing. So verse 6, so couriers went through all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. And we see the result, verses 10 to 12. So the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun. Again, those are northern tribes. But they laughed them to scorn and they mocked them. However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. And the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Genuine spiritual renewal is always accompanied by a renewed unity in the body as the primary things become so much more important than the secondary things. Like, you, there's been like 300 years, 200 years, since the north and the south kingdom split like, we don't think there were differences between the groups. They're saying, no, worship of God, the celebration of the Passover is more important than what divides us. So come, join with us, unify with us. And it's interesting, it's very realistic. Some are like, you guys, I mean, look, you go to people and you tell them you guys need to repent. A lot of times it's not going to come across well. <laughs> but some people did. And so this Passover that's celebrated is not just a southern affair. It is a unified people of God movement. This is what we see. When God moves, the church unifies. Now, again, we've talked about, you know, it's easy to talk about division out there in our denomination, out there in you know, Christian circles in America. It's a lot harder to talk about us because then it gets personal, right? But where are we disunified? Are there strained relationships you have with someone in this church? I don't mean broken relationships. We're, we're a very nice church. We don't break relationships. But are there people you just rub up against and they annoy you and the dialogue in your mind is sinful? Maybe you need to reconcile with them. Do you have a tendency to spend more of your emotional capital on secondary issues? I mean, truthfully, are you, are you more excited about secondary issues than about God become man for the salvation of people. If you're in seminary or Bible college, we are all prone to that. COVID has been a source of division for many churches. And now numbers are increasing, and I promise you, there's going to be, there's going to be temptation to divide over COVID. A secondary issue. Where are we disunified? If you're a Christian and you want to see renewal come, you want to. You want to see the church in America renewed. You want to see the churches in our city renewed. You want to see this church renewed. You want to see your own heart renewed. Like we want God's presence to come closer to us. We do. 
And here's the thing. Sometimes when we look at how things are going out there, or even in here, or even in our hearts, it's very discouraging. And then we look at where Israel was when Hezekiah came. Their leader was offering babies on burning them alive. And God brought renewal. Look, the desire that we have for renewal is not a pipe dream. It's not like a misdirected fantasy. It's something that God will fulfill. He puts that desire in our hearts, and he is one who continues to come to his church and to renew us. It will happen. He'll break into our story. But what do we do? We can't bring renewal. That's, that's God's prerogative. Only he can do that. What do we do? Well, first, we reconsecrate our lives every day, and we renew our warfare on sin. Abraham Kuyper once famously said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That's the truth. We don't, there are many inches in our lives that we often don't recognize Christ's sovereignty over us. Where do we need to reconsecrate ourselves? Are there relationships in our life that are not fully consecrated to the Lord? Is our work time consecrated? Is our studying, is our leisure time fully consecrated to the Lord? Are there pockets in our life? No, 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 I can't, I can't offer this to you, Christ. We consecrate all of our life. And then we make open warfare on sin. We make no justifications. We give no allowance. We take no prisoners. We don't give up. And we do all this regardless, so that Regardless of all else, we might have more of Jesus because he's the summation of our heart's deepest longings. He's the source of all this good, true, and beautiful. Let's pray. Christ, we, we, just, we just want to walk more closely with you. You are the light of the world. Outside of you, everything is darkness. So please, may you bring renewal to our hearts. Lord, that's where you must start. My heart needs renewal. May you consecrate ourselves to you that we might be a people who are set apart for your glory. Truly, in radical ways. May you help us make war on sin to not countenance his presence. And may you bring a renewal that will sound forth for your glory throughout history. We plead with you, Christ, do this. For it is in your holy name that we pray. Amen.